It's good to see you. Thank you. Hey, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in the book of John today. We're not going to cover a lot of passages. You'd be fine to stay there in John 17. It's going to be the one that really leads us the most, although there are a lot of passages we could turn to here. And just as Charlie had said last week, we spent a little bit of time showing you how Legacy as a church charts its course based on the Great Commission. That's actually how we built our mission statements. And we kind of looked at how all good, healthy churches have a mission statement that's going to kind of move adjacently, if not right on top of the Great Commission. And we did answer the question, what about when we're not fascinated with Jesus? What happens when we don't enjoy him? And does Christ even care as long as we're really good at making disciples? Does it affect our discipleship process if we don't enjoy Jesus? And today we're going to answer the question, when is it okay to withhold our investment in others? When is it all right to do that? I mean, let's face it. Some people bring a very low return on investment, don't they? You pour, you pour, you pour. It doesn't feel like it goes anywhere. It's like a, it's like a, a streaming show that just keeps loading but never really goes, never really launches. It's what investments, uh, uh, maybe experts would say, throwing good money after bad. What happens whenever we pour and pour and we don't see anything from it? This is where John's going to be helpful. We're just going to start off and read the passage. We're going to be in verses 20 through 26, okay, so we can catch the whole context. This is what the Bible says to you and me today. Christ, as he's praying to his father, says, I do not ask for these only, meaning those disciples around him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Hey, just pause for a second. That's you. That's you. I mean, by way of disciple making, disciple making, disciple, all the way to Knoxville, Tennessee in the year 2023, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Okay, it's a lot, right? But you get the, you get the drift. Uh, you know, one of the things I love studying, I'm an avid student of the movement of culture. I love it. That's why it's always showing up in my sermons, by the way. I'm always examining what it is that makes our culture what it is. And culture... I mean, people kind of use that interchangeably with society. They're not the same thing. Society talks about the kind of people that make culture, but culture is just our shared experiences, our shared language, our shared wins, our shared losses, our, sh our shared everything. It's, it's, the, it's kind of the coloring of, of a people. What, you might say it's the vibe a people give off. It is our culture. And I am fascinated with how our culture got where it's at, what it looks like, 
I'm, I'm fascinated with where it's going and, and why I think it will get there. And the reason I'm a big fan of this is because it helps me try to connect the gospel truth with people. Because the gospel's timeless and it's ageless. It sits outside of culture. But we are firmly inside of culture. In fact, you cannot be outside of a culture. We're a distinct people in a distinct time. So understanding culture helps us kind of connect the gospel where it matters. This is why Karl Barth, who was an old Swiss theologian, says to take your Bible and to take your newspaper and to read them both. But to always read your newspaper through the grid of the Bible, all right? I mean, I took some liberty with his words, but if we were to do it today, it's be free to read the news, to analyze, to be a sociologist yourself, but to always do so through what the word says to us. And for me, this means paying attention to things. What Billie Eilish says about modesty to young women today. I'm interested in that. I'm interested in why we as a people will rename holidays, right? Or why we pass some legislation and not others and what that does to culture. What athletes do off the field and how we respond to that through social media as fast as we can. And then why people respond to that response. I find all of it fascinating because ultimately I have a hunger to understand how society, you and me, interprets itself. How do we see self? Meaning, progress. How do we see sin? What do we think rinses that sin off of us? Listen, it's not the same as it was in the 50s or even the 80s, and it's going to keep changing quickly. This is what I went to school for in seminary. It's the study of anthropology, which is just a fancy way of saying the study of humanity. And one of the first things they teach you in anthropology is there has been this continual slide faster in the West than in the East, but it's happening in the East at an increasing pace. There is a fascinating slide between how we see ourselves as a part of a group, community, tribe, to viewing ourselves as a solo individual, right? Now, that's always happened, and it's always in our kernel nature to see ourselves in that way. But, I mean, when you think about it, generations ago, I don't know how many years you want to make that, but just generations ago, your place in this world, your significance, your safety, your, your reason for getting up in the morning was typically tied to your tribe, your community, your family even, even above your own aspirations and your own ambitions. Think, uh, think George Bailey and It's a Wonderful Life. I mean, it's that time of year, right, to be watching that movie, even though it's not even a Christmas movie. Don't get me started. It's as Christmas as die hard as Christmas, right? There's Christmas going on somewhere in the movie. You can watch the movie anytime you want. But he gave up his aspirations and his ambitions to travel the world, at one of those suitcases with all the stickers on it, to do what? To take care of the community, to come into the savings and loans, to take care of the people around him. If your mom and dad generations ago made shoes, it was probably expected and very normal for you, whether you like shoes, whether you even wore shoes, to make shoes. This is just the way it was. Not so much anymore, right? We're pretty mobile now. We're transitory people. We're a solo people, we have ambitions, and now we have the means to chase those ambitions. And I am not here to say that things were better in the old days, because they weren't, agreed? I mean, they had their own issues in the old days, generations ago had their own slate of sins, their own reasons to repent, their own definite need for Jesus, just like we do today. And I'm not even saying that to drift away from tribe or community is bad. I mean, how many people in here are doing the exact same thing their parents did? Not me, right? Not me. We have opportunities now to learn and reinvent ourselves like we've never had before. But what has been noteworthy 
among anthropologists, especially Christ-aware ones, is how fast, how way fast we are moving to being solo above us. Me more than us has been a primary as we move further and further through history. More than ever before, we are quick to cut from the tribe, quick to cut from community, and focus on number one. We, what we want is a limitless life. And people, let's face it, they bring limitations, right? And we've had this in us since Adam in the garden. It's just that now we can dress it up like progress. It looks like progress to be doing something totally different than your parents did, to be better than your parents, to be better than everyone else in the room. Our culture in the West largely prefers individuality above communal identity and communal care. Largely standing out above blending in, rising above, far over stooping down. Really, just me is better than us. That's where we're gradually and now quickly moving to. But listen, when you were born, didn't you just kind of step into a steady IV drip of this? This is all you've ever known. This is how we survive in the jungle, to look out for number one, right? So the very things that we hear, the very things that we just kind of catch as we grow up, it, it already agrees with the broken part of our humanity, which says everyone else is important, but let's face it, only to a certain point, you above us at all costs, right? We do whatever we can to benefit ourselves, climbing the ladders that are right in front of us. Adam showed us what this looked like in the garden, by the way, as he stretched for a limitless life. When the enemy came and whispered in his ear, you too can be limitless. You can be limitless. You could be just like God. You don't have to depend on anybody, ever. This is why the gospel is such good news, one of the reasons, because we have a second Adam that came to take everything that the first Adam destroyed and to turn it upside down. He came, Advent, that's what we'll celebrate <clears throat> starting in a couple weeks, the Advent, the arrival of Jesus. He came and redefined our social connections, redefined our aspirations, our ambitions even. The gospel effectively repositions you and me. The gospel puts us in cramped quarters, doesn't it? You ever think about it that way? I mean, I don't know how long some of you have been a Christian. I've been a Christian for quite a while, but I still have a pretty avid memory of what it was like to be around people in those early days. Excuse me. <coughs> I got this cough on the ropes, man, but it might pop up a couple times, right? Fair warning. <coughs> I remember looking across the room and saying, this guy... I feel like I see this guy all the time now, right? A little bit of a drain, just going to say it. A little bit of a drain, a little bit of a, calls on my resources more than my other friends do over here, right? And I'm not sure I'm bought into this thing called accountability. I don't know that I like telling you all my business. I don't like you asking all these intrusive questions and being in my business. It was a little bit of an adjustment for me. But the gospel came and showed me the value of it not just of my social connections, the church, but also my aspirations, meaning my ladders stopped looking the same. Instead of climbing the ladders to the American dream to be elevated above everybody else, now my ladders look like picking up a cross that actually lowers me. So the big question is, is if the gospel does all of this, then why is it still so hard for me to put us on the same shelf as me? Why is it still so hard for me to not put myself above you. Maybe you can ask yourself the same question. Why do I still want to be unlimited if the gospel's so good? Or why do I want to be unresponsible for you? And I get that's not a real word. 
irresponsible is. Unresponsible is not, but we're going to use it today because I think it works, right? Let's look back at John. John 17, if you're there, verse 20. We're going to go back. We're only going to read a couple verses. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Listen, why is Jesus praying this? This is a prayer. He's talking to his Father. Why? Why is he praying this? Because he knew how ridiculously hard this would be for you and me. He knew we were going to need this. I mean, here's the main idea. Jesus joins us to himself, but in doing so, he joins us to each other as well, right? And he knew that this was going to be brutal. Your new birth, just like your birth birth, your first birth, was into a family, shared your genetics, shared your last name. Hey, wasn't that hard for some of us? Some of us have had some patchy family experiences. That was hard. But being born again puts you in a family where everyone's got a different last name. Difficult people, weirdos, right? In family with you. People that would become your best friends and listen, also people that would wound you. People that you would be investing in at a deep cost to yourself for their benefit and then yet you find yourself benefited in, from what other people have poured in you. This is brutally hard. Hard enough for Jesus to approach his father and ask for you and me to succeed in this. Right? I mean, Hebrews shows us that this was hard for the original church. Like, I mean, the church didn't get very old before this was already a problem, right? And we know from the book of Hebrews that people were already opting out of this thing called tight proximity. They were already opting out of gatherings. This is what we have in Hebrews 10, verse 24. You can stay where you're at in John. <clears throat> and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So instead of stirring, encouraging, discipling each other, instead of doing these things, we were opting out, even as an ancient church. Even as an ancient church, we were tempted to make our faith a personal faith between me and God, right? I mean, listen, the more things change, the more they stay the same. I mean, don't, this is why I, I would, I won't, but this is why I would insert my rant on virtual church, which isn't even a church, right? The challenge is very obvious for you and me, going from me to us, going back, not from just tribe to individual, but going back from individual to tribe. That's the challenge, especially when us is such a flawed people. Am I right? Does it not feel inefficient to you? It feels very inefficient to me. Because like Adam, I want to be limitless. I don't want any boundaries. But by attaching me to people and making me responsible for them, that limits me. Especially when our new family tree is full of high-maintenance, slow-growing people. Not you, of course. If you're in this room, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about other people, right? Listen, we carry the residue, you and me, we both carry the residue of an old operating system, what I call a a membership mentality or a club mentality. We all do this, and we do it everywhere. It's, It's natural. How will this help? These are the two questions we ask ourselves pretty much every day, even without asking it. How will this help me? How much will it cost? Will this serve me? And how much will it 
cost me? I mean, have you noticed, for instance, this is fascinating to me, how subscription-based services are, have been very good at this. So you've all noticed that the prices go up. Whatever it is that you're subscribed to, you've probably noticed that. You'll get an email, you probably will halfway read it, delete it, and then a month later you notice that the price has gone up, right? Isn't it interesting? They must have some really smart people on staff because they always figure out a way to raise it just enough to keep you in, right? How many times, if you're like me, I mean, how many times have you caught yourself saying, yo, if they would have raised that one more dollar, I would have bounced. How did they know? Like, how did they know? But as we raise the price of guacamole, as we raise the price of Hulu, we look at those things and we say, is it worth it? Is it still worth it to me? So many decisions are filtered through these two questions. Will it serve me? And is the cost worth it? Even in church shopping. And listen, don't feel grimy about that phrase, by the way, church shopping. I don't have any issue with that one bit. I throw no flags. Think about the first time you walked through the high school atrium. Did you not, honestly, did you not ask yourself, is this going to serve me and my family? Is it going to take care of us? Right? There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. I think we should honestly shop for churches. You know, I'll catch guests coming in, and if you're a guest, it's good to have you here, but don't feel the compulsion to tell me or anyone else this. Sometimes guests will come in and they'll say, hey, listen, we love to hear. We might check out a couple other churches, which I'd expect them to say, but then they always, they always throw this little caboose statement on the end of it. We're not church shopping or anything. I'm thinking, but you are. I mean, and it's okay. It's okay. You should. You should. You should see what's out there. Will it serve your family? Does it align with your values, your theology? Does it look safe? Is the leadership sound? You should, you should do all of these things. Shop, friends. But listen, also, and look for a place where you could spend yourself for the person next to you. Where you could spend yourself. Lay your life down, not neglecting the meeting together. Otherwise, we're in close proximity but we carry a lot of this low investment mentality in. How little can I get away with? That's not, by the way, that reminds me of like an elevator. When people all pile into an elevator and they all look the same direction and they count the seconds, which is what a church can look like, right? We're all pointed to the same direction, just counting the seconds. We don't really know the person next to us. We're not really going to invest in the person next to us because we're all about to get out of the elevator. It's possible that so many of us struggle with this solo, me-first mentality. We might even be connected, but we're honestly just one brutal moment from somebody else, some high-maintenance person before we bounce, right? We, we feel limited, but it's okay, but you limit me a little bit more and I'm gone. Listen, when I'm honest, this is me, this is when Luke, when Luke is honest, and maybe you can be honest with me if you struggle with this, we want to be connected, don't we? But not too connected. Not too connected. Connected up to here. We want close relationships, but not so much invasive ones, intrusive ones. We hate feeling alone, but we struggle to take the steps to feel unalone. We say we have grace, but we want to bounce as soon as the pain gets a little too firm. We say we want commitment and be committed to each other, but we still will put me above us, right? I think this is just a part of growing, recognizing that being open with it, contending with it. If we don't, if we don't do this and do this often, then the church can develop this missional blister because what it will produce 
in display for the whole watching world is a people that are partitioned off from each other, siloed, right, broken up from each other. It reminds me of the picture, I always think of this, and it's probably because it's one of my favorite books, my favorite stories. It reminds me of the monster in the story Frankenstein. That's, a, that's over 200 years old, 1818. By the way, she was 19 when she wrote that, right? Published when she was 20. It was the beginning of what we call the horror genre. It didn't really exist before that. But it's the story of a thoughtless creator, Dr. Frankenstein. The monster never had a name. His name wasn't Frankenstein. But this thoughtless, selfish scientist made a body where there was individual powerful parts, a powerful arm, a powerful leg, but stitched together and not really much to look at but it did reveal the thoughtlessness that went into the creation. And listen, the church can look a lot like that, right? Stitched together, individually powerful, not awesome looking, definitely not revealing a beautiful designer. Definitely not doing that. Maybe more of a club, complete with membership dues, announcements, stickers for your car. I mean, how boring, right? How boring. Who sees that and wants to be in that? You see, Jesus says that when people see you and me living as one, not uniform, but unified, when the world sees us living as one, us with each other, him and us, that they will stop and take notice. It, It will actually bring a demonstration to the declaration that we're making. And is this not what we want for the city of Knoxville? For people to look at, at us, at any, any healthy church, and say, listen, I, these people, I don't vote the way they vote. I don't look at sexuality the way that they do. I don't look at money the way that they do. But yo, listen, they will do anything for each other. Like how they all get along, I have no idea. But I tell you what, it makes me want to take Jesus a little bit more seriously. It makes me feel a little bit safer asking them questions. You see, Paul takes nearly a whole chapter in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, it's just the 12th chapter, where he talks about how you and I form body parts, where basically we work because we are interconnected and Jesus is the head. We honor each other and we play our part to honor Jesus's awesome grandeur. I can't function without you. Listen, I can't function without you. You don't limit me, but as Jerry Maguire says, you Complete me. Another not Christmas movie, but it's okay movie. You complete me. You don't limit me. You don't, you don't hem me in. I actually can't function well without you. See, Jesus, what he does in the gospel is he deferred his individual preservation for the glory of his father and for the good of his bride, the body, right? See, he never said me above us. He never said that. Jesus invested in people also who promised a zero ROI, no return on the investment. He came to build a church that would also continue to make disciples in the way that he came close to us. This is what we see in Romans 5. You can stay where you're at because this is a quick read, but in Romans 5, I'm going to be in verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, while we're still broken, he found us as bad investments and he took responsible for irresponsible people. You see, the gospel community carries a cross. 
We carry a cross, friends. Because Jesus was not unresponsible for us, but he took responsibility for us. He, he wouldn't climb the ladders that were in front of him to achieve great things. He'd be demolished. He'd die. He'd die by deferring his solo desires. He would even say along the way, not my will. Not my will. And let me tell you what this does for me as an introvert, okay? This brings me a great amount of freedom. Freedom of all things. Not, not, not this obligation that's a, a weight on my shoulders, but it brings me a freedom that what I'm really hunting for by avoiding investing in other people, what I'm really craving, what I'm fighting for so much, Jesus has already given me a life of significance, a life of good, a life of great. I think I can get those very things by avoiding the drama of slow-growing people. But it's, it's actually flipped. It's flipped. He has effectively removed your limitation, your primary limitations, right? Your limitations primarily are not people around you. It's death and decay, right? I mean, every year or two I get older, I could feel my limitations encroaching more and more. I can't do what I used to do, right? And then one day I'll die. That's the hardest, that's the hardest full stop that we would call a limitation. He has effectively removed our limitations and adopted you and me into an eternal royal family. Well, we might have last names, but we have the same royal genetics now. It's fascinating to me. That freedom that I crave so much by eradicating people who draw energy from me, that what I'm really looking for has already been given to me. So I'm free from hoarding. I'm free from avoiding. But... But Jesus is praying this because he knew this was going to be hard. Right? That brings me a lot of comfort. Jesus is saying, listen, I'm praying, Father, that you'd keep these guys solid with each other like you and me are solid. Like you and me are solid. You know, listen, this is our mark. This is our mark as a church. This is our mark. That the world would see something different than a club or a monster that the world would see something a little bit more intoxicating than that, that it would see the gospel and how we handle ourselves with each other, that it would be stopped in its tracks, that it would hear all of the bad press and say, yeah, I don't, I'm not I'm a Christian, but I don't believe what the press says. I'm not a Christian, but man, I'm telling you what, there's something safe about those people. You know, that little icon that spins on your screen it's been around only, believe it or not, since the mid-90s. It's called a throbber. Some of you knew that because you're smarter than me. Some of your devices, it looks like a spinning beach ball or a spinning pinwheel, or sometimes it's a circle that's spinning. Sometimes it's the logo for whatever company that's flashing or doing something dumb. And what they're hoping to do by you seeing that image, they're hoping that you have patience, right? This is what the, this is what the company is trying to tell you. Hey, we're working really hard to have content at demand right now so you can enjoy the next however many minutes. Thank you for being patient. That's what they're trying to say. That's not what I hear, though. That's not what I see. You want to know what I see? I see, hey, we don't care about you. Right now, somebody else is watching this episode while you don't, right? And we're laughing at you at the corporate offices, and you'll take it. Oh, and by the way, we're raising your fee, right? That's what I hear whenever I see it. So I have this rough relationship, this love-hate relationship with it. Listen, this is a great picture for me of what real community is. It's investing in others who just spin for a long time. Am I right? For a long time. No promise of any new episodes. Just a high cost. And it feels like it gets higher and higher. Christianity requires a stamina for people who are always loading. It does, friends. And yet we are free. Free, 
free to spend ourselves deeply because Christ found me a non-starter. A non Listen, there is nothing you're going to find in a life of staying solo and unbounded and unlimited that could even touch what Jesus has given you and me. You are free, friend. You are free from the compulsion of hoarding a life of solitude away from drama, investing in no one. This is why we have fought so hard to embed this, not just in the mission statement, but even in our values of authentic community. Last week we did, we, as you've already heard, we looked at gospel fascination, enjoy Jesus. But what does that do? It builds a people that will invest in each other, right? Invest in each other. Man, I find, listen, I have to repent before every sermon I write. I, I guarantee you, when I write sermons and I put them together, it's not easy because I can't bring anything to you that I will not wrestle with on my own. This is a hard one for me. I mean, why do you belong to a people? Hey, here's a harder question. Who in your life right now is taking too long to load? Who is it? Right? Or maybe you're able to say nobody because you figured out a way to live this world without investing in anyone. I know one of the things I would have said if I was in your shoes maybe 10 years ago, but Luke, what if I'm wasting my time by doing that? I mean, I've put enough time in. I mean, I've given it to college try and some. I keep pouring in that person and pouring in that person and nothing changes, nor will it ever change. What about when it hurts too much? Am I just wasting my time? I think we could ask Jesus the same thing. Can we not just ask him the same question on how he handled us? I mean, this is what the old me would have said. The old Luke would have been very happy to say, I'm not going to pour any time into that person. They're not promising. There's no ROI in that person. They're never going to give me back. They're never going to grow from this time I put. In fact, I feel like I'm just throwing good money after bad money. I feel like I'm investing and investing in nothing. So I'm not going to do it. It's a matter of stewardship for me. I'm going to find my time with these people that will pay off over time. The others, they cost too much. Jesus took an opposite approach, though, didn't he? Investing in sex workers, investing in diseased people, in villains, in the uneducated, in slow growers. It would be tax collectors. It would be fishermen. It would be criminals. It would be enemies. It would be me. He took a different route. Friend, listen, as you and me drive a church forward, as you and me, as we push a church forward that breaks down from this into living rooms and breaks down again into coffee moments in a pub or over a phone or whatever, I can make you some promises. Are you ready for these? Here are some three, or three promises you can take to the bank. Number one, you will be let down. You will feel ripped off. You will be wounded. Promise. Take that to the bank. Number two. When you feel that, you will share in that moment a suffering with Jesus that he all too much recognizes. You'll get to share something with the king that came to rescue you. And what that means is you'll grow closer to him because you're sharing something with him. We always do that. We always grow closer to the people, the ones that we share something with. And in that moment where you are thinking, man, I don't want to pour any more time into this person, Jesus would look at you and he would say, mm, I've been there, man. I've been there, it's tough, but listen, and he will encourage, you will share that moment. Three, you will grow, you will grow, and you will not live a boring life because you will leave a legacy of people around you, investments far and wide in improbable people, 
God will be glorified. The church will move forward. The world will see it. The world will see it. Listen, maybe, maybe this finds you at a place where you need to repent like me. I will say this, if you are here and you are far from Christ or you're watching online and you are far from Christ, and when I say that, I just mean that you probably heard some stuff today that you agree with, some of the things that you don't agree with, things that you understood and things that you didn't. There's a reason for that. This isn't for you, right? A church service is for the people of God. However, we're glad you're here. We're glad you're here. And what I would like you to know in this is that when Jesus finds us, he finds us as villains We try so hard to clean ourselves up and we think that we might get clean enough to show up to a church service and not feel dirty. We might feel clean enough to manage some really short-term conversations before we have to squeak out to our car, right? Before people figure out who we really are. Jesus finds us with, as I've always said, with rocks in our hands, right? It's not like we committed graffiti. He catches us with with a spray paint in our hand. He's like, gotcha. He finds us at our worst, our ugliest, our dirtiest. And yet he calls us in that moment to a life of promise, Part of this is he calls us to a life of abandoning me first. Abandoning me first. And that's what I would submit to you today. That today would be a day that you abandon yourself as king. That you would leave a solo individualistic life that is not getting you anything, but just further in debt, emotionally further in debt, spiritually. That you call out upon Christ, who will love you deeply, all the way to the very end, and then more.